today, we will obviously be talking about the resurrection. But before we begin discussing, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for this day and what it symbolizes, God, um, in such a, a fun, enjoyable time, but, but it, it means so much, literally the foundation of our faith, God, the, the resurrection, Lord, um, I pray that through this time, you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, reveal to us that, that this is something that we can actually trust in. Um, that it's not just a, a tall tale, Lord. And I pray that through this time, God, that uh, maybe those that don't uh, really know you and pursue relationship with you, that, that they would start that relationship. And then those that do, God, that you would just encourage and spur on their faith uh, to continue seeking uh, you on a, on a deeper level, God. So I pray that your spirit would move in power during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we talk about the resurrection, I remember before I was a believer, it was one of those things that's like, meh, I don't know about that one. Okay, the resurrection, I don't know if I, if I actually believe that. But when you look at history and you look at what the Bible says and you look at other historical records and logical arguments, there's a lot of evidence that points to the truth of the resurrection. So the title of this teaching, no points today, just the title, The Resurrection, Myth or Miracle? Was it just a myth? Was it just a tall tale? Or was it actually a miracle that God had performed? Well, we're going to look at what the Bible says and some other historical things to, to be able to make the decision for ourselves. Was this actually an event that took place or was it just a story? If you would, we're going to read uh, John's account of the resurrection. All the gospel writers talk about it. But in John chapter 20, we're going to... Uh, Talk about some stuff a little bit, but mainly we're going to get through John 20 and then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to see what Paul says about the resurrection, its validity, its integrity, and the necessity um, in believing in the resurrection. Okay, John chapter 20, verse 1, says, Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now this, this stone couldn't possibly be moved by one person. Okay. This is a huge stone. All right. Then she ran verse two and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they lay, have laid him. So she's assuming that uh, Jesus was just taken by the Roman soldiers. Verse three, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. That other disciple is John. So apparently John was faster than Peter. Um, <laughs> I love how he put that in there. Verse 5, And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So these things were strategically placed, okay? And this whole picture actually gives you a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. That's for another time. But it's it's obviously somebody took these cloths off, okay? It wasn't just like something else. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John, Went in also, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Okay, we see John believed, but they haven't seen the risen Lord yet. All they've seen is an empty tomb. They don't, they don't know exactly what's happened to Jesus. John's like, he must have risen from the dead. But it says that they didn't know the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. If we look in Psalm chapter 16, this is one of the places, there's a few, but this is one of the places that refers to the resurrection. Now we have to remember this psalm was written about a thousand years before Christ came. And he says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, for you will not leave, speaking to God, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Okay, Sheol is another place, uh, another word for, for dead, okay? Uh, for hell, I mean. That's where people would go that died. And there's two places of Sheol. We won't get into that. It's in Luke 16. But this is the point. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever, forevermore. See what he says, you, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is specifically speaking of the Messiah, though the Messiah in spirit would go to Sheol. He would, he did. He wouldn't see corruption, meaning his body didn't decompose and he didn't stay there. Okay. Death couldn't hold him right? Hell couldn't hold him. He was there for three days. And we see that his body, it never faced corruption. Actually, just the opposite. opposite. His body was transformed. It was resurrected. The point is the disciples, regardless of how many times Jesus told him that he was going to die and rise from the dead. He told him that I can't even tell you how many times he was constantly telling him, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. They still didn't get it, okay? I don't know what the lapse was, but they just didn't understand, okay? Um, we probably would have been the same way, so I'm not criticizing the disciples. But Jesus told them time and time again, he was going to die, be buried for three days, and rise from the dead. So Jesus, he came specifically to fulfill scripture. He fulfills this scripture, but there are many other scriptures throughout the Bible that Jesus Christ fulfills. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, says just that. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I mean, I came to this earth to fulfill scripture. When you look at the scriptures that Christ has fulfilled, it's absolutely fascinating. When you, uh, some of you, uh, may be familiar with this study. Some of you, uh, might be, might be hearing it for the first time, but there was this study done at, at Westmont College. Okay. There's the study done at Westmont College by, uh, this doctor. His name was Dr. Stoner. Okay. He wasn't a stoner. That was just his name. All right. So Dr. Stoner, basically he took 12 different groups, 12 different classes that had about altogether 600 students. Okay. So he uses 600 students and they look at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and they start figuring out the, the odds of these things happening. What are the odds of Jesus fulfilling this many prophecies or that many prophecies? And they crunch the numbers. Okay. After they crunch the numbers, they submitted the numbers to atheists, to secular people, to people of all different doctrines and belief. And everybody came to the same numbers. Yeah. Okay. What you're saying is true. These ratios, these numbers, they actually add up. Lastly, they submitted these numbers to the American Scientific Affiliation and the American Scientific Affiliation said, yes, these numbers are accurate. What do these numbers say? Well, if you just take eight prophecies, just take eight prophecies, Jesus born in Bethlehem, sold for 30 pieces of solder, uh, silver, betrayed by a friend, just like some of the basic ones that we know about. If you just take eight prophecies, the odds of that being fulfilled are one times 
10 to the 17th power. Okay, this isn't a math class, but I'm just going to try to help you understand this. One times 10 to the 17th power, it'd be like this. If you took two feet, like two feet, that's probably about two feet, yeah? Something like that? I don't know. Two feet of silver dollars and laid them across the entire floor of Texas, the whole state of Texas. You filled up Texas with two feet of silver dollars. You marked one of those. So you put one X and then you grabbed the blind man and you said, go find the one marked. The chances of him picking up that one marked coin is one times 10 to the 17th power. So you look at that and it's like, all right, the chances of that aren't very likely. Like that's going to happen, okay? When you look at 48 prophecies, Jesus fulfilled 48 prophecies, just 48 prophecies. Uh, what would the ratio be there? That's one times 10 to the 157th power. Okay. We're like, what is that number? It's one times 10 with the 157 zeros after that. There's one chance in 157 zeros of, yeah. So this is a huge number, right? To help you put it in perspective, when you look at mathematicians and how they uh, evaluate ratios and odds and all these different things, mathematicians will say that any ratio, any odds that are over one times 10 to the 50th power, mathematically impossible, it's never going to happen. Okay, Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies is one times 10 to the 157th power. Mathematically impossible. That's not going to happen. Jesus fulfilled over 350 prophecies from the Old Testament. That That is mathematically impossible. You can't even fathom this number, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. God made it so obvious. He made it so clear. You can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These things were written so long ago and he fulfills them to a T. See, when you look at the scriptures that Christ fulfilled, when you look at what he said and what he did, it really doesn't take that much faith to believe that he actually was who he said he was. Let's look back at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 10. <clears throat> then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So we see the gospels, not just John, the other gospels as well, tell us that Mary Magdalene was the first one to see Jesus in his resurrected form. Now, sadly, but truly in that culture, a woman's witness bear, didn't bear very much weight. 
Okay, the point is that if the gospel writers were just trying to frame this story that was compelling and believable, if they were just trying to sell people on believing it, they wouldn't have mentioned this because a woman's testimony didn't carry much weight in that culture. The gospel writers are only saying that Mary saw Jesus first because it was true. They're trying to claim truth. They're not trying to just like persuade you to believe this and and convince you to believe that. They're just trying to tell you the truth of the events and what actually happened. If they wanted to write a compelling story, they would have left this part out. They wouldn't have said Mary was the first to see her. But again, they're claiming truth. Let's look what happens in John chapter 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. And that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus, now he visits the disciples. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay? Verse 24, now Thomas, Thomas referred to as doubting Thomas, right? Because of this one thing, he gets labeled because of this one time that he was doubting, but he was like a legit disciple. He was ready to die for the Lord in John chapter 11, but he's doubting Thomas. I I feel sorry for Thomas. He's more than just doubting Thomas. Look what happens. Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. And look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, not just my Lord, my Lord and my God. Again, Thomas was claiming that Jesus is God because Jesus claimed to be God. And we'll get into that in a moment. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus, he he reveals himself to the disciples. Then lastly, he reveals himself to Thomas. Thomas was able to see him. He was able to touch him. And he says, you believe because you you, you got what you asked for. And I, I gave you this evidence. But there's going to be many that come after you that aren't going to be able to experience what you experienced. Blessed are those who don't see and still believe. Now that's us. That's those of us who believe in the resurrection even though we didn't see it. But what we're going to discuss as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that it really doesn't take much faith to believe in the resurrection. As crazy as that sounds, let's look at it. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul basically is making an argument for the integrity, the legitimacy, and the necessity of the resurrection. Why it's absolutely pivotal and why we can trust in it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So before Paul gets into the resurrection, he simply shares the Gospel. This is the Gospel, that Jesus Christ was God, He died on a cross, He was buried for three days. It wasn't just like He died and came right back to life. He was buried for three days in the tomb, and then He rose again. That's the Gospel. It's not believing in one of those things. It's believing in all of those things. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That first part is so important that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's that word kurios in the Greek. It's the Hebrew word is Adonai. He's saying that you believe Jesus is God. That you first have to believe that Jesus, he wasn't just a man. When he says he's the son of God, what he's claiming is equality with God. He's saying that he is God. Everything that the father has, the son has. Jesus, Jesus claimed to be God. And that's the first part that we must believe in believing the gospel, that he truly is the Lord. And he claims to be God so many times throughout the gospels in so many ways. But I just want to point you to one example in John chapter 10 with this interaction that he has with the scribes and Pharisees. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my father are one. Not that we're just in a relationship, that we are one. We're completely unified. We're, we're equal, okay? Look what happens, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why are they going to stone him? Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Then the Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, Jesus wasn't killed on a cross because he started a revolution or he started a movement. He was killed on the cross because he claimed to be God. That's why they put him to death, because of blasphemy. But was he truly God? Well, Jesus says he was, and the disciples claim that he was too. In John chapter 1, we see uh, uh, John, he starts off that gospel and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus being the Word, the, Jesus Christ was God. He is God. See, Jesus claimed that he was God many times. The disciples claimed that he was God many times throughout the Scripture. So we have the opportunity, the option to believe that that he was who he says he was or he was something less. And the option of good moral teacher, you can throw that out the window. Okay, I'll have conversations with people and that's kind of what I like landed on. Ah, he's a good guy. Before I got saved, he's a good guy. He taught good stuff. Whatever, that's for you. That's not for me. But he doesn't give us that option when you read the gospels and look at what he says. See, he claims to be God. So if you call him a good moral teacher... That's not good morals if he's lying, okay? So Jesus, he gives us three options. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He's either a lunatic, meaning he had a messianic complex. He thought he was the Messiah and he wasn't, okay? He just really believed it and he wasn't. He's a liar. He knew he wasn't and he just told everybody that he was or he truly is Lord. Those are the only three options he gives us. He's that you can't just say that he was a prophet. You can't just say that he was a good teacher. He's either Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. Those are the only options that Christ gives us because he said he claimed that he was God. So that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing that he was God, but also making him Lord over your life, making him God over your life, meaning doing what he's asking us to do, going where he's asking us to go. 
I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about that relationship that leads us to at least strive for obedience. Not only do we confess his lordship, but we believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead. That's pivotal. Believing in the resurrection. You can't be a Christian and just believe in the death of Christ. Okay? It takes all three of those things. Believing that he's Lord, believing that he died on a cross, and believing that he rose again from the dead. It's that. It's not believing that he died on a cross that saves us. It's believing that he died and rose again that saves us, and that he truly was God. See, that becomes the tricky part for many people. Believing that someone rose from the dead. Like, that's not something you see every day, right? Like, who's ever seen someone rise from the dead? No, right? No, we don't like see, that's not like something that we're familiar with. We just see people rise from the dead all the time. Like, that's something like none of us have ever experienced. So it definitely takes faith to believe that. But if we look at the historical records, if we look at both what history says and the gospels say, and we look at this through a logical philosophical lens it really doesn't take much faith to believe in the resurrection now first off before we get into the resurrection we have to look at his death right because that we said that that's crucial a crucial component in believing the gospel so if you look at jesus christ's death i've heard people say before like i don't even know if jesus was a man Okay, you haven't studied history at all. There's not even an atheist historian on the face of this earth will say that Jesus wasn't a man. Okay, if there's two things we can be certain of, even secularist, even atheist, even agnostics, whoever, they'll claim that Jesus Christ did come, he was a man, and that he died on a cross. Okay, that's the most certain thing that we can know when you look at history. We know there's some will say, no, Jesus didn't come or, or he didn't die on a cross. If you look at history, <laughs> that's Obviously not true. Historians claim, yes, Jesus died on a cross. He was a man that died on a cross. Now, after this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Paul preaches the gospel, he begins to make his argument for the resurrection because this church in Corinth uh, didn't know a lot about it. They weren't sure about it. They questioned it, as some do today. So Paul begins his argument in verse 5 and talking about these eyewitness testimonies. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. Okay, Cephas, that's another name for Peter. It means a stone, okay? So he was seen by Cephas, he was seen by Peter, and then the 12. He was seen by Peter, then he was seen by the other 12. But we have to look at this. This is bigger than just he was seen by Cephas, then the 12. You remember, if you know the story, the night before Jesus died, what did Peter do? He denied the Lord three times. Peter denied the Lord to a little girl. A little girl approached Peter and Peter was afraid. And he said, no, no, I don't know him. I'm not with him. I I, I don't know that guy. Peter went from denying the Lord to radical transformation. Meaning later on, Peter, he would have to witness his wife get crucified right in front of him. Basically what they're telling him, if you continue to claim that Jesus is God and that you saw him risen from the dead, we're going to kill your wife. We're going to torture her in front of you. What did Peter do? All I can tell you is what I saw. And this is who he was. And he had to watch his wife get crucified right in front of him. Then right after that, they went to crucify him. He has to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like his king. They, They crucified him upside down. And all he had to say, well, it was, it was all a hoax. It, it wasn't true. We just made it up because we love Jesus. That's all he had to say. 
but he stuck to the truth. Why? Because it wasn't just something that he believed. It's something that he witnessed. It's something that he saw. When you look at the other apostles, the 12 that Paul's mentioning here, other than Judas, he hung himself. When you look at these guys, the night before Jesus died, when the soldiers came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what'd they do? They ran away. They were scared. They were in fear. These men ran away before the resurrection. Then after Jesus comes, interacts with them, after the resurrection, they have this faith. Something changed. These guys, other than John, all of them were martyred. Every single one of these guys were martyred. How do you go from being fearful and fleeing to having full-fledged faith where you're willing to die for what you believe? Something serious must have happened. An event that you don't change like that just for nothing. The event that they claimed that changed them was the resurrection. They saw the Lord risen. Now, many people will die for what they believe in. Okay, We see it with Islam even now. Sadly, in Egypt and across the world, ISIS, radical Muslims will die for what they believe in. Right? It's called jihad. It's the only, jihad. It's the only way that they can seal their salvation. The disciples didn't die for something they believed in. They died for something they claimed to witness. Think about it. If you weren't sure if you saw something and they're going to put you to death, I'd be like, well, I'm not sure. I'm sorry I said it. Uh, we just came up with a story. But they didn't die for just something they believed in. They died for the truth. They knew the truth. They witnessed the truth. They have eyewitness accounts and that's why they died. And they stuck to the truth until the point of death. They were all martyred. So people who believed in Jesus, we see, believed and claimed that he rose from the dead. Look what he says after this. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians fifteen six. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. But Paul's saying, hey, there's 500 witnesses, at least, that saw Christ risen. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them about it. If you don't believe me, go ask all the other people that saw him. They were still, many of them were alive to this present day. Look at verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. This is important. Who was James? He's not talking about the brother of John. He's talking about Jesus's brother, James. Okay, Jesus had some brothers. And we see during Jesus's life and his ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. We see that in John chapter 7, verse 5. His, his brothers didn't believe. James didn't believe. Okay, James went from a place of complete unbelief, complete doubt to faith. When Jesus showed up in his resurrected form and interacted with his brother James, you know what happened to James? He ended up becoming the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the the church leader there in Jerusalem. From not believing to becoming a, a leader for this faith. Why? Because Jesus proved himself to him. And you know what? James got martyred too. When the... Roman soldiers approached James and asked him to recant his faith. He, he, he wouldn't. They ended up throwing him off the temple mount, okay? But he survived. He survived falling off the temple mount, and then they beat him to death with a club. All because he claimed, no, no, no. Jesus is God, and he rose from the dead. I saw him. I'm not just telling you I believe this. I actually saw him. Then Paul says, look, I'll reread verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also. Paul's saying, I saw him too. The apostles saw him. The disciples saw him. Peter saw him. James saw him. And then I saw him. Who is Paul? 
Well, first, he, before he became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. History talks a lot about Saul of Tarsus, and he was known for what? Persecuting Christians. He was literally trying to prove the truth wrong. He was trying to prove the gospel wrong, and it ended up proving him wrong. He went around literally having families drug out of their houses for believing in Jesus and having them put to death. Okay, he went from this radical lifestyle of persecuting Christians to what? Becoming probably the most powerful apostle that ever lived. How do you explain that? He explains it. Jesus came to me on the road to Damascus. When I was on my way to persecute more Christians, Jesus knocked me off my high horse. I encountered him in his resurrected form, and I haven't looked back since. I've been sold out for the Lord. He came to me. He appeared to me. See, Paul, that testimony going from doubt to the point of persecution to faith, something happened there. Again, he claims that something was the risen Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Paul discusses these eyewitness testimonies, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. He's saying the grace of God, the resurrection, this relationship with God has compelled me to labor more abundantly than they all. Not that I have to do these things, but I get to do these things because the Lord proved his love to me through his death and resurrection. Look at verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. So we see in the church, there were some that didn't see Christ resurrected. So they're questioning it and they're saying, no, there's no resurrection from the dead. Christ isn't risen. And basically what Paul's saying, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you're not going to either. Okay, so you don't have hope. All right, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you have no hope for heaven. His his whole, everything that he said was solidified through the resurrection. So by believing in that, we're able to have hope. We're able to enter into heaven. So Paul, he's talking to these believers that were struggling with the resurrection. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Paul's basically saying, what benefit is there of preaching an unrisen Christ? What do I gain by preaching a Christ that didn't rise? Why would I say this just to say it? If I'm preaching an unrisen Christ I, and he didn't rise, I don't gain anything. In fact, I get judgment. He's saying, if we're preaching a, a, a risen Christ and he didn't really rise, then I'm a false witness to God and he's going to condemn me to hell. So basically Paul's saying, there, there's no motive here. I have no benefits uh, of preaching a risen Christ if he didn't really rise. He's saying, I'm claiming the truth. This is something that I actually saw. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That's crucial. It says, your faith is useless if Christ didn't rise and you're still in your sins. Wait a minute, I thought it was the death of Jesus that washed away our sins. 
It's both. It's the death and resurrection. If he died and he didn't resurrect, then the death did nothing for us. Okay, in Romans chapter 4, you can just write it down. In verses 24 and 25, it says that. That we're not only justified by his death, but we're justified by the resurrection. See, his resurrection solidified his death. His resurrection solidified his identity. His resurrection solidified everything that he said. He said he was going to die. He said he was God. He was. He said he was going to be buried he said he was going to rise from the dead he did all those things to prove who he actually was his resurrection proves that it proves who he was it proves what he says in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in christ have perished basically paul's saying everyone that's been martyred for their faith by believing in jesus they've not only perished but they're spending eternity in hell okay if christ didn't rise then 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 they're they just spent their whole life just wasting their lives completely if they're preaching an unrisen christ that didn't rise again he's just trying to solidify the importance of the resurrection first corinthians chapter 15 verse 19 if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all the most pitiable. We are of all the most pitiable. See, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is pathetic. Basically what he's saying is our faith is completely dependent upon the resurrection. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we have nothing. Christianity is just a false religion. There's nothing. It's useless. It's futile. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there is no Christianity. Okay, it's just something that people made up over time. But he's saying, no, 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 that's not what it is. In fact, he says, I'm the one preaching Christ and we're the most pitiable. If we believe, if we have a false hope in Christ in the resurrection, we're pathetic, right? Saying, I'm only preaching this because it's true. Think about it for your life. Maybe those of you that, that have been walking with the Lord for a little while, think about all the time, all the effort, all the energy, your devotions, your prayers, your fellowship, all that stuff. Completely in vain if Christ didn't rise. Completely useless means nothing if Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul's telling us. And then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, okay, that's what it would be like if Christ didn't rise. But he says, but now Christ has risen from the dead. How do you know, Paul? Because I saw him. I'm telling you as a fact, I'm telling you with truth that Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. And he says he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And those who put their hope in him, those who believe in him will rise from the dead, too. If he wasn't the first fruits, if he wasn't the first one to rise from the dead, then the people after him ain't rising from the dead. But if Jesus truly did rise from the dead, then those who believe in him will rise from the dead too. And I'm not talking about coming back to life. I'm talking about experiencing eternal life. And that's exactly what he's getting at. See, we can look at historical, and there's so much stuff. We can talk about this for months. There's there's so much historical, logical evidence out there to support that the resurrection actually happened. It literally is the best logical explanation for the events that were recorded in history. A man's not going to die for a lie. The disciples aren't going to die knowing that they're lying. Okay, they died for something that they claim they saw. They're dying for truth. 
A man is not radically changed just from nothing, from a just change of heart. I was like this and I killed Christians and now I just want to live a better life. No, 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 no. That doesn't just happen. You don't have a sudden change of heart. These men, they claimed that it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that radically changed their lives. See, we can look at the logic. We can look at the history. We can look at these eyewitness accounts. And yes, that gives us a substantial amount of evidence to believe in the resurrection. But do you know how I know the resurrection is true? I believe it with all my heart because of the transformed lives that I've seen, that I've witnessed. You have evidence of the resurrection in this room right now. People that were something and became something completely different. And I'm one of those people. And I'm glad to say I get to partake in that. See, some of you know me and some of you know my story. Some of you don't. To put it shortly, I was a hideous human being. I was a drug addict, a liar, a thief. You name it, short of killing someone, I, I, I did most of those things. Horrible, mess of a human being. The only thing that changed my life was Jesus Christ. When I put my faith in the Lord and really started pursuing Now, I was a skeptic. I was a philosophy major in college. I didn't believe in Christianity. I didn't believe in miracles. I didn't believe in any of that stuff until God got a hold of my heart and I was brought to a place of faith. And when I believed, radical change started happening. So much so, let me tell you, my dad, he's a scientist. He's actually a, a health physicist, very intelligent man, um, he, uh, he, you know, he leans on, he used to lean on the science and evolution and this is how things were. And there's so many explanations for all that stuff, but that's not the point. See, my dad, he was in unbelief. He was in disbelief. And when I got saved, I would constantly reach out to my dad. I would, I would call him. I would talk to him. I would just try to show him the love of Jesus. I would try to give him the answers that he's looking for. Then about two years later, backtrack, my brother got saved a, a month after me and he was almost as bad as I was. You wouldn't want him in this room at that time. Um, but basically when we started changing and started communicating to my dad, it took two years, but you know what happened in two years? My dad was talking to my mom and he said this, how could we not believe this? Look at them. They're not the same people. They're completely different. I'm not talking about behavior modification. I'm talking about a complete change of heart. And not only have I experienced that, there's so many people in this room that I've experienced it. I've witnessed it in this church. I've witnessed it outside of this church. I've witnessed it since I've come to the Lord. The best evidence of the resurrection, regardless of logical arguments, is the transformed life. The Lord literally will do a supernatural work in your heart. He will change desires. He will change the way you think. He'll change so many different things. Now, sometimes it's not just an instant change. For some, it is. Sometimes it takes time. And as we pursue the Lord, the perspectives start to change. We start to understand truth, but we're not going to find it if we're not seeking it. See, maybe you're one of those that you know about this stuff and, you, and you've heard about people being changed but, you know, okay, I know this guy, Jesus died on a cross, and that's about the extent of, 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 of my faith. But we've discussed about the fact that he is, he is Lord, and that he did rise from the dead. And we can look at the evidence, yes, in history, yes, in the scriptures, but also in the people's lives that have been radically changed today. And maybe you hear that, and you're like, I don't know about that. But I want to know about that. And I haven't experienced that, but I want to experience that. There, there's things in my life that, that I want to change. I don't want to continue on the same road. I don't want to continue on the same path. It's easy. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 23. 
So Jesus is getting ready to raise this man, Lazarus, from the dead. Okay, This is not the resurrection. He literally brings this guy back to life. He died and he brought him back to life. So this isn't the resurrection, but it connects. He's talking to Martha, and he says to her in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus, he makes it simple. It takes faith, yeah. But as we discussed, it doesn't take that much faith. It literally is the best explanation, but it does require a certain amount of faith. Any relationship you have requires some faith. It's the same with God. Okay, you might be one of those people like, Thomas, I need to touch it. I need to handle it. And then I'll believe. Then I'll, then I'll be like Thomas. And I, and I will believe the Lord completely. But I'll tell you right now, you live your whole life by faith. What do I mean? Just look at the relationship that you have. Uh, maybe you have a friend. Maybe you have a husband. Maybe you have a wife. If there's not faith there, if there's not trust there, you don't get close to people that you don't trust. You don't get close to people that you don't have faith in. Meaning, when your wife or husband goes to work or your friend, you believe that they have your best interest at heart. That they're not going to commit adultery. That they're not going to do all these different things. Every relationship requires a measure of faith, a measure of trust. It's no different with God. He wants us, he invites us to pursue that relationship with him but it is a faith-based relationship that doesn't mean that we walk completely blind he encourages us on the way he makes himself real to us he makes himself known to us he'll let us know that he's there that he's with us but it does require a measure of faith the resurrection points to God's faithfulness. See, when you pursue the Lord, he will prove himself faithful. He will prove himself trustworthy. Now, that doesn't mean that everything in your life is just going to go easy peasy. No, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulations. There's a lot of messed up stuff in this world. It's not going to be easy peasy, but... He says, there's a world that I've created for you that's better than this world. In fact, you were created for this other world, but you live in a world that you weren't created for because of sin, because of corruption, because of suffering and all these things that have been brought into this world. He says, I got a better world for you, but you got to trust in me. See, the Lord, once again, he proves his faithfulness through the resurrection. Why? Because everything he said, everything he did was contingent upon the resurrection. The resurrection, once again, it solidified who he claimed to be. It solidified what he did. In fact, it solidified the scriptures that spoke of the resurrection. But again, it takes faith to believe in these things. Now, God, his ultimate plan was the resurrection. His plan was the resurrection, okay? But God, regardless of him fulfilling his plan, he invites us to come and be a part of his plan. See, God has a plan for each of us. He has a big plan and he says, I want you to come be a part of this plan. And he communicates this so beautifully in Jeremiah chapter 29. Real quick, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, God is speaking and he says this. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He has a plan for us. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. He says, God, I got a future. I got a hope for you. But you're only going to find it if you seek me. You're only going to find it if you're pursuing relationship with me. I got a plan and it's so much better than the plan that you have. Believe me. But it's not going to happen if you don't want it. See, the Lord's a gentleman. He loves us. You can't force love on people. Have you ever made anyone love you in your life? Doesn't work, right? You probably had people in your life that you wanted to love you, but they didn't. But you couldn't make them love you, right? The Lord doesn't make us love him. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us so much. We can't even understand or fathom how much God loves us. But a relationship goes both ways. We got to love him back. We got to choose to pursue it. God's love for you won't make you choose him. Okay, you got to choose to love him back and embrace that love. And that's what God desires for each and every one of us. He's not going to force you. He might try you. He might stir your heart. He might put, hey, hey, you need this. You, you want this. I have a hope. I have a future. But you're not going to have it if you don't want it. I'm not going to make you take it. We got to choose to take it. We got to choose to grasp it. We have to choose to embrace it. He has a plan for each and every one of us. We're not going to see it if we don't draw near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, how you give us so much evidence. You give us so many different things to, to meditate on and chew on to, to help us understand that you're really not asking us to have that much faith. You're just asking us to have a little faith, Lord, and you can do a lot with a little, Lord, and, and it's uh, amazing, God, what you've done in some of the people's lives in this church and in my life and so many other people's lives. And God, we know that that's evidence of the resurrection, that you truly did that, Lord, because when you rose, then you ascended and then you sent the Holy Spirit. And we know the Holy Spirit does that transforming work. So we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would bless the rest of this day, Lord. I pray that you would stir hearts. If there's anyone that hasn't committed to, to becoming part of the plan, to, to allowing you to fulfill their, your specific plan for their lives, I pray that you would move. God, before I say amen, um, many of you come to our church on a regular basis, but obviously it's Easter. We get some, some newcomers. And uh, I just want to ask you, this day, this holiday, you know, we do the Easter bunny things and the eggs and all these different things and, and all that's tradition. And even coming to church on Easter can be a tradition. And I would do that tradition, but I wasn't a believer. I didn't believe this stuff. I just came because that was the only time of the year that my parents would make me come to church. Never any other time, just that time. See, the Lord, he's not calling us to tradition. He's not calling us to religion, okay? He's calling us to relationship. And again, that relationship has to go both ways. And it starts with a little bit of faith. Again, in Romans chapter 9, sorry, verse uh, chapter 10, verse 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing that he is God, believing that he was who he said he was and making him God of your life and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It starts with faith, but what he's inviting us into is taking a step of faith to enter into that relationship. See, I went to church several times before I actually accepted the Lord. 
And sometimes my sister would force me for rides. Sometimes it was just a Christmas or Easter thing. And, and there would be like these altar calls and different things like that. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that whole thing. I, I don't want relationship with the Lord. But most of those times, the Lord was doing something in my heart. He was stirring something. He was calling me. He was drawing me. And I would resist it. I don't, I don't want that right now. I'm not ready for that. I like my life the way that it is. I don't want to lose all these things. I don't want to surrender these things. I don't want to give up these things. But the Lord promises us. When we forsake all to follow him, if we lose anything, he's going to bless us with a hundredfold of what we lose. We always gain when we come to Jesus. What we think we're losing, we gain a hundred times more. That comes through the abundant life, the opportunity to love like you never have loved before. God defines love. He gives us the power to love, to experience a joy that you've never experienced before. That can only be offered from the God that created us. And that was Jesus Christ. All things were created by him and for him. That's what the scriptures say. So I'm going to ask, if maybe that's you, and, and you've heard about this stuff, and you kind of know, and maybe you even grew up in the church, but you haven't really put your faith in the Lord. And that word faith in the Greek is actually trust. It's talking about a relationship, trusting in the Lord. If that's you and you haven't really committed your life to Jesus, but you want to, and he's doing something in your heart, and there's some excitement, maybe there's some fear, there's maybe some concerns, maybe worries, but if you know what you're supposed to do in accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, I would just ask that you raise your hand. You don't have to come up, just raise your hand whether this is a recommitment or a first commitment, the Lord would have you pursue relationship with him. It goes both ways. For those of you that desire that, just please raise your hand. Um, and I'll ask you to, to repeat a prayer after me. Now, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to make you come up, but if you can't raise your hand publicly and make a public profession today in a church, as far as your relationship with Jesus is concerned, then tomorrow you're not going to be able to live that faith out. The Lord calls us to make a public profession because he doesn't want us to be ashamed of him. If I was married and I never told you I was married and I always tried to hide it, you would think like, he's not really married or he doesn't love his wife. Jesus calls us that. He wants us to profess. He wants us to proclaim that we are in relationship with him. So those of you that raise your hand, you can put your hands down. If anyone desires that relationship, please just repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you were. I believe that you truly were God. I believe that you died for my sins. And I believe that you rose again the third day. Lord, I believe that my life can be better with you. So I ask you to come inside, to enter into my heart, to be my Lord to be my king and give me the desire to pursue relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for doing what we couldn't.
In Jesus' name, amen.